Our reading this morning is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 35 through 45 out of the 2011 NIV. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in in your glory. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave for all, of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reading this morning is one of those timeless stories, isn't it? It's a timeless story that you may even hear outside the context of a worship service or outside the context of a Christian community because it's a timeless story. You know, one of the characteristics of timeless stories like these is the reason they're so oft-repeated is because they need to be repeated again and again and again. Why? Because as Leo Tolstoy has said, we're all thinking about changing the world, but none of us think about changing ourselves. So when we look at a story like this, we impulsively think, wow, wouldn't our world be great if everybody was like that? And what we first ought to think is, how can I be like that so perhaps my world can change? This timeless story comes to us in Mark's gospel, which was our reading. It also comes to us in Matthew's gospel, and the thing I love about the gospels, some people have trouble with this. They think there are contradictions afoot, but I don't see it that way. What I love about the gospels is the different viewpoints on the same story. They're wonderful. In Mark's gospel, we hear the words coming directly from James and John. Can you let us sit on your right and your left. In Matthew's gospel, he puts the words in the mouth of their mother. But even when he does that, at the end of the request, Jesus speaks to them and says, can you drink the cup I drink and baptize with the baptism I will be baptized with? Uh, Put it another way. Mark says to us, Mommy might have initiated it, but they were complicit. (laughs) In other words, it comes from them, one way or another, straight or vicariously. John and James wanted to be leaders in the kingdom of heaven. 
Really, that's a pretty common kind of request, isn't it? Or process? I know for young people, uh, we continually encourage them to be leaders. We encourage them to be leaders wherever they are in their vocation. We encourage them to be leaders for Jesus Christ in their world. We encourage them to be spiritual leaders in their home. So it's not really untoward, is it, to say, I want to be the greatest leader for the kingdom of God that I can be. It seems to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's what they were saying. They were saying, I want to be at the top. I want to be the best. I want to do the best. I want to be right beside you, Jesus, when you usher in your kingdom in its fullness. I I think it's important to say that because frequently when we look at these passages, we give the disciples a hard time and forget that probably they would be our words. Or, in another way, it's important to realize what the context of these words were. Now, Matthew gives us a larger context for these words. The same passage, which appears in Mark 10, appears in Matthew 20. And in Matthew 20, Jesus has said just earlier, in chapter 19, something that well, really produces this kind of response in the disciples. Listen to Jesus' words in chapter 19 of Matthew, which precede this by a little bit. Peter, when hearing the story about the rich man and the one who had put too much investment in money and not enough investment in God himself through Jesus Christ, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, we've left everything for you. In other words, Lord, that guy's got it all. He's got all the money in the world, and we left everything for you. In other words, what's in it for us? And Jesus says to them, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, that means the kingdom of God, completed, right? At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who were first, who are first, will be last. Now, now wait a minute. Put yourself in the context, okay? Just earlier they had heard this statement coming from Jesus about the kingdom of God and about sitting on 12 thrones. Don't you think you too would have said, hey, Jesus, I'm really excited about ruling with you. Can I be at your right hand and your left? The right hand was sort of like vice president figuratively speaking. The left hand may be Secretary of State. In other words, I want to be up there at the top of your cabinet. I want to be in your administration. I want to do great things with you. I don't think it's really an improper request. I think their request was just grounded in a reality that Jesus responds to. Because what we find is that immediately the other disciples who either overheard or heard about the request were absolutely indignant. 
Uh, that too is an interesting story, isn't it? Absolutely indignant. Why are they indignant? Are they indignant because they had their mother first ask and then they were complicit in it? Are they indignant because they got ahead of the line and asked first? Are they indignant because they were more righteous and they thought James and John should not have made the request? I think it's probably that they're indignant for the above two, not the last one. I don't think they were more righteous or more humble. They just wanted to be the ones at the right and the left. So Jesus begins this conversation with the mother and with James and John, and the way he begins it is he gives them a provocative response. He says, I heard the request, now let me tell you something. First of all, he says, the positions you're asking about are not for me to even determine. Matthew's gospel uses the word father, not just that they'll be determined ahead of time, but that the father will determine them ahead of time. In other words, the places have already been set, says Jesus. I'm not the one in my human condition, right here, right now, who's going to choose. God has done that on my behalf and yours. The second thing he says is this. You don't even know what you're asking for. You might think you do, but you have no idea what the future looks like. You're asking in ignorance, and I have a question for you. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? The cup that I'm going to drink, obviously, in our minds, refers ahead, doesn't it, to Gethsemane and the crucifixion. But even for them, without that knowledge, the cup that I drink refers to frequently in the Old Testament and especially in Revelation, if you think about this, it refers to the wrath of God. The cup of the wrath of God. Jesus is saying, can you drink that cup? Can you be baptized into a baptism like the baptism I will be baptized into? Again, for us, we think of a wonderful baptism. There's a tank over here. You go under the water. I always pull them out. I don't keep them under, right? It's safe. But to be baptized also has another symbol associated with it in the Old Testament. It is to be submerged beneath a torrent of raging water. Jesus says, can you drink the cup which is full of the wrath of God against sin? And can you go into this baptism beneath this torrent of raging waters that's ahead of us? And they say, like all good followers, sure we got this one, Jesus. Yes, we can. He must have thought to himself, they haven't learned a thing. <laughs> they don't know what's going to happen. But he did respond in an interesting way. In effect, he said, you have no idea what you're asking. But yes, I'll answer my own question. You will. You will drink that cup. And you will be baptized with that baptism. Because you will live, in effect, the rest of your life in me. By the way, the disciples might have had a hard time figuring this out at this juncture on the path to Jerusalem. 
this crossroads moment, they really couldn't quite understand. But my friends, let's remember, they eventually did understand. And every one of them, except John, died a martyr's death. They drank the cup, and they were baptized in his baptism. Oh, by the way, the mother who speaks in this passage in Matthew's gospel is likely, according to the text and tradition, to be one of the women who was at the foot of the cross and never left and was one of the woman, women on her way to anoint Jesus' body in the tomb. She got it too. She drank the cup as well. Right then they couldn't see it. Just like we can't see the future. But when the future came, even when Peter denied Jesus, he turned back and confessed his sin. When the future came, they walked with Jesus. They drank the cup and they were baptized into his death. So this story provides a corrective. We see that obviously, right? And the corrective basically goes like this. Jesus says, I want you to look around you. He says, the world of the Gentiles. But he could have said the world of the Pharisees. I just want you to look around you. Notice how leaders lorded over other people. That's what they get positions of leadership for, so they can be in charge. Large and in charge. Telling people what to do. And serving no one. They are served, but they do not serve, says Jesus. Look around you. Wow, isn't that a contemporary statement? <laughs> we could say to ourselves these very words of Jesus. Look around you. You see what leadership looks like? Now do the opposite. Look around you. You want to be a leader? That's not it. This is it. And here's the contrast. If you want to be first, you need to be last. If you want to be a leader, you must be the servant of all. Even to the point of death. Why, says Jesus? Because I'm giving you an example. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to absolutely lay down his life completely and sacrificially for the other. For those of you who are really into theology, you know there's a bunch of theories about this phrase, ransom from sins. Theories about the atonement and what ransom from sin means and some Theologians have said it actually means that, that Jesus somehow walked into the trap of the devil and paid the ransom and Satan held him captive so we could be set free. Sounds like an interesting idea, but one that I don't believe is quite scriptural. That never have been able to figure out how God could be held captive by Satan. And there's all kinds of other theories, but in spite of all the theories, you know what you could do? You could reduce it to this. You could reduce it to a very succinct statement about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. 
Our sins held us captive as if we were prisoners, prisoners to self and to sin. And Jesus Christ became the ransom for what held us captive. He took upon himself, think Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the wrath of God and the sins that were on you and held you captive and ransomed you from them. Jesus says, there's the example of leadership. You want to be at the right and the left? Well, my father will determine that, but if you are, that's what you do. I, I think there's some takeaways here, um, obviously. <laughs> you could write your own takeaways. I've got four for you. Servants, according to this statement of Jesus, are unassuming but essential. The kingdom of God does not function any other way. The people may be unassuming and almost invisible, but they're absolutely essential. There's a, a classic leadership book which began as an essay in the 70s written by a man named Robert Greenleaf. And by the way, he was from Terre Haute, Indiana. How about that? He, he worked for AT&T before it was called AT&T for a very long time and studied management practices and leadership and eventually wrote this book called The Servant as a Leader. One of the things that's fascinating about this book, and it was one of those many books, you know, that you read whenever you were doing research for a project, and I did. One of the fascinating things about this book is a story that Robert Greenleaf tells. It's not his story. It comes from, from another book um, by Herman Hesse entitled The Journey East. He tells a story of a man called Leo. Uh, Leo was a part of a group of people who were on a journey east. It was, it was a wonderful journey. They were excited about it. They had all the energy behind them. This group of people was just charging straight ahead to the east, and it's a mythical journey. And in the journey, Leo is the figure who just helps everybody. Quietly, in an unassuming manner, he does menial tasks, and he whistles and he sings while he works. And then all of a sudden, and it was unbeknownst to them, Leo just disappears. And the whole journey falls apart. They begin to bicker. They argue with one another about strategy. And everything falls apart. And then they realize, Leo's not here. Leo was actually our leader. We just saw him as a servant. It's not a gospel story. It's not even a Christian story. But I think it's a principle that applies to this story. A true leader in the kingdom of God is unassuming but absolutely essential. Second takeaway. 
Servants have a derivative greatness. Right, and what I mean by that is their greatness doesn't come from them. It's derived from something or somewhere else. Where's the greatness of a servant derived from? It's derived from the principle of servant leadership that Jesus laid down. Or to put it another way, there is no one who cannot be great. Because all of us can be a servant. And our greatness is not us or even our service, but it's service to the king. It's derived from the mission of the kingdom of God. There's where the greatness comes. If we focus on it that way, it keeps us from being falsely humble. It keeps us from being a servant leader through pride, which is deep within us. It's a derivative greatness. It comes, is derived from something or someone else. Another takeaway uh, from this story is servants always point to another. Notice that? Think about servants. That's what they're doing. They're always serving the other, and their service is always pointing to the other. Let me rephrase that statement. Servants bear witness to someone else. There's lots of forms of evangelism, right? Maybe this is one we've missed. Maybe one of the greatest forms of evangelism is quiet, unassuming service to others. In your workplace, in your community, in your church, in your family. And when it's outside the church, it's a pretty obvious opportunity, isn't it? When someone says, why are you like that? Just to say, well, let me tell you a story. I'm a Christ follower. And I'm trying to live like he wants me to live. Wow, what an open door, huh? But notice that the open door comes from the faithful exercise of your service to the kingdom of God. And not thinking about yourself. I think the final thing I want to mention, well, another final thing I want to mention, is servants create shalom. Now, shalom is, is a Hebrew word for peace, and it means more than the cessation of hostilities. You've heard me refer to this multiple times. Shalom means complete flourishing. It means the way everything ought to be. It means wholeness and wellness and healing and everything the way it ought to be. That's shalom. Servants create shalom. Think back to the story of Leo. They create wholeness and healing. And actually the presence of Christ, which is shalom. When you serve, you have the opportunity to create shalom. I end with a reference to the Lord's Prayer. Oh, as a matter of fact, instead of just referring to it, let's say it together, and then I'll make a comment. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We did a series on the Lord's Prayer one time. I'm not going to exegete that whole thing. I'm just going to make one point. When we come to the phrase, Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven, those words should be something more than simply a request. Those words should be a reminder that Christ followers are given the opportunity to bring God's kingdom to this earth. Live like Jesus and the presence of Christ will be there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of Jesus Christ. Um, we readily admit that um, the example seems to be above us. We could try as hard as possible to be the servants you've called us to be, and we would be no doubt a failure. But that's what's so wonderful about grace. You take flawed human creatures like us, full of sin, full of self-centeredness, and when in the exercise of our spiritual duty to be servants to others. When we do that, even imperfectly, Lord, you promise that your presence will be with us and in us. And that the power of those moments when we serve the way you served will be more than just examples for human beings. They'll be the very power and presence of God. So we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to step into that kingdom and to bring it to our earth. We have to wonder what it would be like if everyone lived as servants. Maybe it would be heaven, something we all long to see. And until we see it, Lord, May we bring it to earth. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.